the knights who say... Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming Streamline Studios of Outlaw Radio USA, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, the following program is produced by Magic Goodbye. of the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the <laughs> legendary Burl Bear. What was with the snark? The snark laughing. Because I just rejoice in the fact that I am indeed legendary. <laughs> Again with the snark laughing. That's funny. The man over there beating up the bottom is our ever popular Howard Lapidus, manager to the star. Mark C.G. Boyer, our intrepid fact checker. You know, I do. I know much more than I care to reveal. No, you don't. You see, a lot of it has passed and gone. Oh, I know. Senility is such a comfort. Yes, it is. That you are a very comfortable person. Yeah, I read a great book called Letters for Marion. Oh, we're going mean... to get into this right now. Oh, Blazer. Joel. Yo! Joe, I, uh, Joel, I got news for you. You're in deep shit, pal. Well, it I sounds like Joel. a heavy show. Joel, Joel uh, all we want you to do, Joel, is uh, help us set some people up, and we'll let you go today, okay? All you have to do is agree to help us, and we'll work out the details later. You just roll over on all your buddies, and we'll let you go. How does Joel, that sound? Joel has... no idea what he's in for. Oh, I, I can't do it. I'm sworn to silence. <laughs> you can't be too silent for the next hour. Yeah, it'll make a boring show. Now, you've, you've heard this statement before, Joel. If you'll just help us out here, if you'll just give us the names <laughs> of other people who may have been in the Communist Party. No. Hey, Mr. McCarthy. Oh, God. By the way, Joel, he, he is going to... He, uh, uh, this is Howard, by the way. He, uh, Burl is going to promote communism. <laughs> now, that may or may not be a thing, I, I, and I'm not here to judge. Or, or and I don't are. even drink. But, but just anymore. be aware that he's here to promote I'm communism. not really here to promote communism. I'm here to promote some really good purple Owsleys, which is what I'd yeah, like. Yeah, you know it. Yeah. Why don't yeah. You, why don't you How about some Dupe Checks Revenge, that the window pane? The Purple Barrels or the Orange Sunshine, right? Oh, the Orange Sunshine was dandy. I also like the window panes. Dupe Checks Revenge, we called that, because supposedly it came from Czechoslovakia. Oh, God, I have to do this, don't I? Why don't you explain to the audience <laughs> who we're talking to? I'm talking to Joel Blazer. Nice guy. He was hanging out with the Grateful Dead, traveling the world with Grateful Dead concerts. Minding his own business business selling LSD to consensual people such as I who wanted to take it, and he gets popped. Here's a shock. How could that have happened? I don't know. Joel, how did it happen? Well, it was, uh, it wasn't my fault, no. Um, <laughs> you, you weren't there. <laughs> it was, I never was caught with drugs in my life, but I was on, uh, what was it, April 24th, I was federally indicted on a 19-count federal indictment for stuff that happened about 18 months before. An ex-girlfriend and an old friend 
were con- were subpoenaed in front of a grand jury, and my friend who I was selling to, his friend got busted, and without getting into the whole minutia of the details, which we can get into, they got in trouble, and then um, they sort of admitted to everything and told on me, and then they went in front of the grand jury, and they the federal grand jury that was convened in the 6th Eastern District of Cincinnati um, issued a 19-count federal indictment. They followed me around and eventually arrested me with that indictment. And I subsequently went to trial, lost my trial, went to prison, and absolutely did not tell on anyone, give any names or anything like that. The buck definitely stopped with me. And I was charged with nine counts of money laundering and ten counts of interstate commerce of LSD. And just for the audience, uh, the uh, money laundering statute, the, the book itself is, you know, it's five, six inches that is a vast application of the law that you can get you fall under for money laundering and the fact that the money was transferred over the western unions is considered part of money laundering it's not just hiding the money but how the money is transferred it also applies to that law does that answer your question yeah so there you were minding your own business sound asleep in your apartment well no yes actually actually i was uh Go on my way to work. I stopped selling drugs because I did not want to go to prison 18 months prior. I was moved back to Milwaukee, which is essentially where I grew up. I'm from Chicago. My brother said if I had worked with him for the entire year, my older brother, Michael, that he would cut me in for half of his business. And I had been back in town for maybe six, eight weeks. It was springtime. We were just doing the spring cleanups with the landscaping company. I thought that's who it was at the door, and it was the DEA. You know, they shoved a gun to my... They said, are you Joe Blazer? And I said, yes. And then they shoved the gun to my head, drove me down to the floor. There was uh, two agents in front and two in back with pump shotguns and automatic uh, weapons, unbeknownst to me, until I, you know, they pulled me out. And then they threw the indictment in my lap and said, are you Joe Blazer? Later on, they brought me to the federal courthouse and they said, you know, you're going to spend the best part of your life in prison, your 20s. And they said, all you have to do is agree to help us, and we'll let you go home today. And I, you know, I was 23. Um, it's, I had a deep sense of honor for my for my dad. As screwed up as my childhood was, I just I always had that in me somehow. I don't know why. Um, I knew I was in deep trouble. That's why I stopped selling drugs. Um, I figured, you know, I was facing probably 25 years. They said 40, but I said thought realistically 20. Uh, I ended up getting sentenced to 151 months, which is 12 years, 7 months, and in the federal system you have to serve 85%. So that, you know, that was a tough spot to be in, but I, I mustered up the courage to say, take me to my cell, which was the federal courthouse, and then they took me into the, you know, that night I made my way into the county jail, which was the federal holding facility, and thus began so, my journey through the federal prison system, so Joel, winding you, up ultimately you, in Marion. You grew up in uh, in Milwaukee, middle class, lower, upper middle class, which... I say lower middle class, you know, white America. My parents struggled, um, but they did they did the best they could. Um, I went to good schools. I, you know, I always had food on the plate. Um, the good value system. Um, 
I was born in Chicago from age one to ten. For two years, we lived way out in the country uh, on the western border of Wisconsin in a restored schoolhouse. My dad always collected money for the meat packers. He just did really good with that. And he did it in Chicago. He did it in this little and then in Milwaukee. And uh, yeah. So so uh, so, so getting into jail uh, now. Here you are in jail, middle class guy. Nonviolent offender. No, not at all. Uh, what was day one like? Well, there's the county jail, and then there's the prison after the sentence. So, like, if we, you know, the very, one of the very first days after I got sentenced, there was a brutal and violent fight that I was involved in where I almost killed somebody, and that I, you know, um, was really an eye-opener for me. And that was the county jail. And once, once I, because I got bail eventually, you know, and the county jail is just like your county jail, just like on TV. It's just, it's a, it's a, can I swear? Mm-hmm. It was, it's just an absolute shithole. It's a stinky, smelly, sweaty shithole. And so that, but like a prison is a city. That's, there's a store and there's a hospital and the, you know, inside the jail, there's another jail called the hole. So it's like this mini city. So it's, you know, it, it's tough, but it's like you have more amenities at the prison. And, so, so within maybe nine or ten days, I was bailed out, and then you know another before I could go to arraignment, I gotten I missed the arraignment, so I got rearrested. Then I was toured through the whole federal system for 37 days, made my way back to Kentucky. Then they gave me bail again, um, and then I had my trial. About a hundred days later, I lost my trial, and then was sentenced to 151 months. But before I was sentenced. We kept fighting the sentencing because I was never caught with drugs ever in my life. And the, the, when my girlfriend, ex-girlfriend and, and uh, Marty, the, my friend, testified against me, um, they never had any drugs at trial. But they did get the indictment. They did get a 19-count federal indictment. So then eventually, after sentencing, I made my way into the federal prison, the first federal prison, which was a low security prison and I didn't want to do it there and so I purposely got in trouble to get sent to a harder prison where there would be more drugs um, and you'd have a little more respect because every other person would have 25 35 years and I was at the lowest security actual prison it wasn't a camp but a prison but to do 13 years in a place like that you you have to you got to have a reality check you don't want to be there you definitely want to go home you're going to file your appeal but if you're going to have to do 151 months, you want to at least have some sense of comfort. So, you know, I was an avid marijuana smoker, and I had learned the ropes when I was there. And people said if you, you get a little infraction here, you're going to get sent to a, either San, uh, Florence or Inglewood, Colorado, where there's a lot of drugs and there's a lot more respect because everybody has, you know, 25, 35 years. We're sandstone. Everyone was getting ready to go home. That was filled with bitches and snitches. And everybody had four, five, six years. I mean, there were some good guys there who were at the end of their sentences, but they said, look, you just came in, and, you you, you know, this is what you should do. And the other thing, too, when I went in, when I got to that prison, they, I applied for Pell Grants because, you know, I wanted to make the best of it. And uh, the counselor said, okay, you're going to get these grants and you're going to start school. And there's this system, the UW system. They actually had satellite classes in the prison. But then 
from the time I applied to the time that I was getting approved about three months later, the Congress shot down Pell Grants for the entire federal prison system and state prison system, and they those actually came about from a riot, the Attica riot in 1971, which is the granddaddy of them all, that one and the New Mexico one. And because, you know, the thing is, our tax dollars are paying for people to go to prison to become a better criminal. They're not rehabilitating. They're not doing anything. They're housing people in there for 5, 10, 15, 20 years for these these consensual crimes, victimless crimes, because somebody's selling something to somebody they want to buy. They come out, and, you know, their house is bad and evil, and there's nothing to better themselves. So it's this really nightmarish of a circle. So now I, I don't have Pell Grants. You know, and I have 13 years, and what am I to do? So, what do you do? So that's that's part of why I wrote the book. I mean, the whole story's in there. But um, how far do you want me to take it? Well, I want to back you up just a little bit. Let's go back to uh, getting involved in a fight and almost killing somebody real close to the top. Your 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 term is a jailbird. Wait, so so what 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 was this fight you got into where you almost killed somebody? Well, I was in the county jail. I got found guilty, and I was in the county jail. And I explained it in graphic detail in the book. And so I'm, you know, 100 and I was a varsity wrestler. Um, at the time, I was probably 160 pounds. You know, I'm not a badass. I'm just a smooth-skinned 23-year-old deadhead with hair halfway down to my ass. And, uh... Uh, I'm in this county jail. I got found guilty. So, you know, you get you get found guilty in the federal court. You go to the holding pen, which is the county jail, until you get sentenced, and then you get sentenced to the federal prison. So it was that day or the next day, within a few days of being there, these four Mexicans were arrested with a U-Haul truck with, like, 800000 in cash, and then there's a bunch of marijuana residue. The leader of those of that group was my celly. And uh, unknown to me at the time, he suspected these other three were going to rat on him, and he was really afraid of what was going to happen. Now, the races in there are very divided, and there's certain rules in prison and the county jail that they just are. They act like gravity. They uh, That is the way that they are. And they, they're swift and fast, and it's just how it is. Now, I'm, I'm as green as they get. So one of the other... One of the three Mexicans, uh, Mario, one day starts to like shadow box with me, and I just said, "Hey, dude, I'm not. I don't. Uh, I'm not. I don't horseplay. You know, stop." And you know, he he just kept going, and um, and I said it again, and then I'm like, "Okay, this is real." And then all of a sudden, everybody just kind of backed away because it was this challenge, and um, so I just I reacted. You know, and then I had him up against the wall with both my hands, and I was just held him by the neck, and I was squeezing the life out of him. He was turning blue, his blood's dripping all over my hands. He's just kind of going limp, and I just, and then all of a sudden I let go. He falls to the ground. Um, I go into my cell. I wash up. Um, my celly, Easy, comes up to me, and <laughs> he says to me, "Now look." I'm 23. I'm just sentenced to 151 months. I lost my jury trial. I took it like a man. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't take the stand. You know, I'm in this jail. I just about killed this guy. And he comes up to me, and he says, why didn't you fucking finish him off? Fuck that motherfucker. 
and then he pats me on the back and he's like, good job. You know, and that's, that's my introduction into the prison system, that right there. And so later on, Mario apologized, and, um, and nothing was ever said of it again. The police, the cops didn't see it because it was a time that they weren't rotating around the, uh, the, the area of this jail that we were in. It was in the day room, and, um, and that was my introduction to jail. What an that. introduction. I'm sorry? I said, what an introduction. I know. It was, um, you know, it was completely unprovoked by me. And it's funny because when I'm holding him up there, his, his, the two guys, and the, the, all three of them ended up ratting on easy. But as I'm holding him up there, there's white guys in the cell, there's black guys, and there's Mexicans. But nobody would have stopped me. Nobody. Hmm. I mean, he was turning blue in the face. He was out. I mean, he was passing out, and it un, you know, so that's just that's where that's where I was. One in Rome, you have to do like the Romans. I mean, I still don't have any tattoos. I'm about 170 pounds. Um, I'd like to think I'm a nice guy, you know, and that uh, I made it through. Okay, do, I've been out nice. Do you regret not Hold on, hold on a second. Uh, Mark C.G. Boyer has a question for our guest, Joel Blazer. Go ahead, Mark. Do you regret not taking their offer? not because here's the offer they made first of all um well the one thing is um hindsight's always 2020 and i can say anything i want right now um but i lived through it and i think that having the final culmination of winding up in mary in the 23-hour lockdown and what my life became after that i honestly believe that saved my life and helped me to have the deep appreciation and spiritual life that i have that along with the fact that um I'm in an anonymous 12-step program that, uh, you know, I, I I got into some trouble when I got out. I'd say that 12-step program and having gone to Marion are my two biggest trophies and spiritual uh, spiritual sort of guides that I have. And, and, you know, I have a built-in sense of ultimate appreciation for stuff because of what that happened in Marion. And and so I can't take, take it back. And to say a regret... The other, the reason I didn't take it was because of this. Because I said to myself, I knew I wasn't going to have a life sentence. I'm a first-time nonviolent offender. Yes, I'm in big trouble, big, big trouble. But I'm going to have an outdate. Now, if I start ratting on people, I would have had a life sentence for in my eyes. And I looked myself in the mirror and I said, Can I live with myself? Can I be a rat for the rest of my life? And I thought, No. And I said, This is a, a rite of passage that I have to go through, for better or for worse. And I made that decision. Now, granted, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Of course I thought about it. No one was going to kill me. Nobody threatened me. But I could not dishonor myself like that. There's no way. And I definitely don't regret that. The other part of it is this. They, after that initial offering, it comes, let's get to the trial. It's a week before trial. My lawyer comes to me and says, they're going to give you five years to plead guilty. Now, at the time, I'm truly facing 20 years. And um, I said, if they give me three, I'll do it. And then finally, I say, okay, well, what do I have to do to, to get the five years? And there's no, they did away with the no contest. And no contest means you're not admitting guilt. He said, no, you have to plead guilty. And he says, you have to fill out this thing called a proffer. And I said, oh, okay, what's a proffer? This is just me and my lawyer talking about it. 
And the proffer is where you proffer up every single drug deal that you've ever done, names, dates, everything. So that's a mild form of ratting. And I thought to myself, I'm not doing that either. I said, I'm going to trial. I'm a risk taker. And I was a bit naive. I was a bit of an idiot. And I was a bit of a, a, a hoper and a dreamer. And I thought, I, can, I probably can win. So after all that, the fact of the matter is one of the things that kept me the safest in prison, and I didn't know this till I got in prison, less than 5% of all people in the world, in this country, take their criminal case to trial. So the fact that I took it to trial garnered respect from every person in every prison I ever was in because they said, this guy took his case to trial, he'll fight to the death. It was That was like a general belief of anyone who took their case to trial. You had this automatic respect. Now, I didn't know that at the time, but that literally saved my ass many times. It got me exceptional respect. So do I regret not taking that deal? I think I would have regretted it taking it because I would have just been a rat forever, and I would have put somebody in the position that I was in. And what would that have caused? That would have caused even more service. Listen, as as a media guy and as someone who's been in broadcast journalism for a long, long time, one of the most fascinating things about your great book, which is called Letters from Marion. October 15, 1995, Congress makes a decision changing the national drug law, inciting simultaneous riots in over 10 federal prisons as a result of the seemingly racial motivation, causing $39 million in damage, and no one reported it. What was the change in the law? So they made... Actually, there were four changes, and um, I got to I got to preface this with a little bit of a story. The thing, everybody in federal prison, whatever their sophistication about the law, some because they've gone through their case in the law, and, and the other because every federal prison has a pretty well stocked library, and it's the law that they have to. So just even a prisoner that you might think is dumb, they just have a decent understanding of the law. So there's always this. The Verizon trade-in event as explained by... A superhero duo. Ah, it is I, Movement Man. And it is also me, Waste Man. And we are here to save you from wasting your time on your old phone by telling you to move to a Verizon store. That's right, trade in your old phone, get $300 toward a new phone when you buy a new phone. Sorry. (laughs) It's right, though, it's true. sugar cubes of LSD, which is three hits, they would weigh that, and that would be like 18 grams, and if someone got busted with a 1,000 hits of paper acid, that would weigh like six grams, and the guy with the the sugar cubes would get like 10 years, and the guy with the 1,000 hits would get like five years, or something like that. So they changed the LSD law, the methamphetamine law, and the marijuana law, and without getting into the specific details, which I draw out in the first chapter, and it's on my website, those three laws affected mostly white defendants. And they, the Sentencing Commission, which is the bipartisan commission, uh, recommended to make these changes, and they became law if Congress did not enact them. Now, they also were, it was the, I think it started with the, the methamphetamine, then the marijuana law, then the LSD law was third, and then the crack law was third, and there was these huge disparities with crack cocaine and powder cocaine. It's the same drug, 
a kilo of crack mm -hmm. would get you like 20 years and a kilo of powder would get you five years. The only difference was the user. Crack was black, powder was white, mostly about 90% of, of the, the powder users or people in prison were white and 90, 87, 80. They actually, all the laws changed or, or the sentencing commission recommended for all the laws to change. Congress did not step up once for the first three, which affected all white people. And then when the crack law, when the sentencing commission said, we're going to change it, they made a vote and said, we can't do this, and the violent criminals, and this and that. And um, the very next day, the prison I was at, which was Talladega, Alabama, we rioted, and it was an incredible, unbelievable Okay, thing. listen, like, we're going to take a 60-second break to put on our riot gear. When we come back, we're going to hear about these riots on True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio. Stand by. This is Frank Hagen, the gay guy from Outlaw Radio. If you own a cell phone, and I know you do because you probably got Grinder on there, but it's time for you to add another app. That app would be for Outlaw Radio through the courtesy of RadioLoyalty.com. My suggestion is that you upload that app for free, mind you. Yes, totally free app. In order to be able to listen to us, the demons of decadence, every Saturday afternoon from 3 to 6 Pacific Standard Time or Pacific Daylight Time. And you'll have the opportunity to listen to us smoke, drink, and interrupt each other, which we do a really good job of doing. So once again, RadioLoyalty.com to pick up your free app of Outlaw Radio. Once again, this is Frank. So get off a grinder and get on to Outlaw. Nice. The legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rock to the cradle of rhythm and blues. Taking time out of my busy schedule of hosting True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio to remind you to make a wise investment in your library's good looks by buying not only our guest book, Letters from Marion, but my latest, A Taste for Murder, co-written with Frank C. Gerardo Jr., which I'm happy to say remains on Amazon. I like that because I'll probably get a nice royalty check next month. <laughs> but you'll like it, too, because if the book's a bestseller, that validates your purchase. So <laughs> purchase several. And while you're at it, pick up my uh, P.I. novel, that stands for Private Eye, Headlock. Uh, a fascinating story where life after death can be hell and all roads lead to the McFeely Tavern in Walla Walla, Washington. Yes, it's the one private eye book in existence with Burl Bear as the hero of the book. And that's because no one else is going to write one like that, so I did. Buy them both. Back to True Crime Uncensored. Yes, I've heard of it. It's a fine program. I'm Burl Bear. That's Howard. That's Mark on the phone. Joel Blazer, author of Letters from Marion, not meaning... With Burl uh, Bear and Howard Lapidus. Not that famous actress, Marion, whatever her name was. Marion Ross? Yeah, no, Marion Ross is yeah. the thing here. Yeah, no, Marion being the prison. Yes, that's that, that's what we're here to talk about. The the uh, why did you hesitate when you were you were telling a story featuring Mark C. G. Boyer? And, and did you forget what your book was about again? Again? Yeah. <laughs> like again. I've, I've forgotten before. <laughs> okay, that's good. No, you have. Uh, I, I think we should. We, let's get to our guest book. Okay, and, our guest book, Letters from Marion. Now, he was just starting to tell us about when there were these riots, riots in Cell Block 9. 
Well, yeah, you know, but you mentioned Walla Walla, Washington. That's actually a prison town. Oh, duh, I know. I grew up there. <laughs> yeah. Not in the prison. I grew up in the you town. You learn about that. You learn about all the state prisons and federal prison because you have a lot of the people that come. So what's the, the number one? What's the number one federal prison it, the, there is? What's what? Well, yeah, on a scale of like what? On a scale what, of most zero famous to, or uh, most worst? There are. What's, what's, the worst? what's number one? What's what's the best? What's the, the worst? The, the worst. The worst was Marion, but Marion in 2006 was decommissioned as a supermax prison, and in about 2000 or maybe 98, the ADX opened up, and that's at the ADX in Florence, which Florence, Colorado, has this, uh, a, a penitentiary a medium, a camp, and the super, super max, because what happened, both of them are 23-hour lockdown or were, but in Marion, when you went out to recreation, you'd go to outside rec and you'd rec with 80 other extremely super sophisticated, predacious criminals, okay, and you're there. And in the ADX, each in, inmate recreates alone. Well, that's so great for their mental factor, health. Well, no, it's definitely, you could argue it's way less humane, but it's much safer because in Marion, you know, um, you would have to wreck with these men and there was, you know, that that's when the battles would happen. And that, that imagine it being in yourself for 23 hours a day and then you're coming out and you're talking people that very sophisticated, you know, John Gotti, Bruce Pierce, Big Mac, Mike Miguel, Henny, um, James Doc Holliday. I mean, incredibly, the leader of La Emmy. I mean, all these uh, real. Really harsh, intense, very. Um, have lots of control over other people type of convicts. It's just a different sort of place. And so there's the penitentiary, which are like level fives. They have the big walls. There's the FCIs, the low, mediums, and highs, and then there's the camps. But ADX is the worst of the worst. But the thing is, when I first went to the first prison I was in, Sandstone, you learned all the lore. Uh, you know, you learn that when you pee in the toilet seat, you pee, you have to wipe the toilet seat. You never wake up a prisoner when he's sleeping. You don't reach over someone's food. All that stuff. But you also learn about this mythic place called Marion. It's just in every prison. And, you you know, you could stab a prison guard. You could rob 15 banks. I mean, you can't try to get to be sent there. It's just it's not going to happen in your lifetime. It's like uh, it would be like dating Christy Blinkley. It's just not going to happen. And so you, But you learn about this place. And Joel, if somebody, uh, Joel, I've done that. So don't say it's not going to happen. But, but, but then you woke up from your dream. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Joel. Alcatraz had open, had open movement, and when Alcatraz closed, they took the worst of the worst from Alcatraz and shipped him to Marion. Marion opened in 62, Alcatraz closed in 62, and the thing was they did a reverse PR campaign for Marion because somebody escaped or they... They don't know if they lived or died to this day, and it was at the height of the Cold War, so America took that as a black eye. So they invented this place called Marion in the middle of nowhere so that if something did go wrong, no one would ever know about it. And that's they did this reverse PR campaign, but it was the only place that it was ever built like it was. And then the stuff that happened in there, even in the Supermax unit, which even made it worse. I explained that in the first 
three pages of my books. But okay, back I, to I the riot. I want to get back to this riot business. Back to the riot. So anyway, that day, Congress Congress said no. You know what? And so here was the thing. When the, the Sentencing Commission made the recommendations for those three other laws, the, the, the speed, the weed, and the, the, the LSD, there was a period of time, like 30 or 60, 90 days, where if Congress didn't act, it became law. So then they did it for the crack law, and then Congress, within a certain very short period of time, said, no, we're not going to go for that, and they took a vote, and they shot it down. And the next day, it was the day after the Million Man March, or the day of the Million Man March, and I go into great detail, the first chapter pops you right in. It's that day of the riot. It's the, when I woke up, when I woke up, and when I went to... Um, to chow and then um so anyway the riots kick off there we don't know what's going on but once i was sent to marion we find 10 other federal prisons simultaneously rioted because it was this mass sort of prison riot and on my website there's a little link that says riot report and the the, the uh, department of justice spent five million dollars two years after it happened it's a 180 page report in the history of the whole humans on the face of the earth there's been single prison riots that were much more deadly, like New Mexico and Attica, and there was one in prison. Nothing in the history of the world has ever happened like this. And I mean, it's an extremely significant happening, and it happened while I was there. And so me with 21 other black defendants were sent to Marion as a result of the riots. Now, I I was sent there for because of a personal vendetta, something that I got into it with another lieutenant, which is the whole really weaving of the story of why did I really get sent to Marion and it had nothing to do with the riots but it gave cause to this lieutenant to send me to Marion. And then half the people that got sent to Marion with me got extra time on their sentences because starting a riot in a prison, even if it's just one prison that rioted, you will get extra time on your sentences. They got anywhere from four to ten more years added onto their sentence, which is a very serious thing to happen. So, um, And so that's a big part of the book, too. I'm, I'm kind of getting lost in some of the details here. Um it was a very intense thing. I mean, guards were beaten with bats. One unit was burnt to the ground. The inside rec building was burnt out. I mean, it was just the most incredible, unbelievable thing. But the minute that I realized the riot was happening, that very minute I sat there, and up to that point, that was the fifth prison I was in. I had been in prison for about 34 months, and I said to myself, I am putting this in a book, and one day it's going to get made into a movie because this story has to get told. There's just too much going on with the war on drugs, with taking the Pell Grants away, with how the drugs have permeated prison. I sold heroin in three federal prisons at that point to support my marijuana habit, and I said, this is just this is enough, and this has to get reported to the world. And that's why I did it. I'll give a shout-out to Martin Scorsese because I really want him and I to finish the screenplay because it's a very there's a lot of social historical Americana in this story that is highly marketable that needs to be told. It really does, and the time is now. It's a very important story, and so that's really the reason why I wrote the book, and here we are talking about it. Remind us, remind the audience how long you, you spent in, in federal prison. Book well, I was, I was book away. I did win, well, because of the LSD law, that took 30 months off my sentence, so that brought it from, remember I said the Sentencing Commission did the thing, that actually took 30 months off my sentence, which brought it down from 151 months to 121 months, and then I filed four appeals, went to one to the Supreme Court, and I lost, 
but the fourth appeal I did win, and I was released that day. I will tell you this, that um, I spent the longest amount of time in Marion, and that was the sixth prison. But I many years that I spent, I don't want to give the book away, but it was, Look. you know, oh. Joel, we're not going to give the book away. We're going to sell your book, uh, but but we want to keep the, the conversation going, and, and it's really important, I think, that our audience gets to know who you are, who was this guy that spent all this kind of time in in federal prison, and then, and then who you are today, and how did you make the transition? And I think without, without giving much away in the book, I think you can probably do that for us this afternoon. Okay, sure, sure. No, he's not running three international corporations. Well, no, he's not, he's, he, he could, though. He could. He probably could. Um, I, what I want to know, i got to shift gears here. I know ahead. that after you got out of the slammer, you did a lot of stuff in real estate. Yes. And you're a real estate consultant. If you're such a damn good consultant, why did you go bankrupt and lose your $2.9 million house? Well, that's a good question. I think it was the perfect storm. But the, the fact of the matter is... Um, I put that house up for sale, and I got an offer the first week that I put it on the market, and I would have probably walked away with 800000 but it was a very, very low-ball offer, and I didn't take it. And so even though that I, I still feel that there was somewhat, you know, maybe I'm in still a little bit of denial. I don't regret it, but I, I, I took this huge commitment on. Um, I bought this house. I bought two other houses at the same time. I added a bedroom and a bathroom. I put it for sale. And um, I didn't take that offer, and I lost it. But what it showed me is that my initial thoughts of what I could do to the property to make a profit was actually correct. I just got a little greedy at the exact wrong. I made some fundamental errors. I worked nine years from the time I got out of prison, starting from absolute zero, and had a million dollars in cash at, at, at about seven and a half years and then in about 10 years I was losing it all and what happened was I took that cash I spent most of that cash and then borrowed money so I not I got to this point of where I was would never have to borrow money again I could have went back to hitting singles and doubles and done little $150,000 deals but instead I wanted to do this big couple million dollar deal so I took all my money I bought this huge mansion, I bought two other houses, and then I borrowed money. So I leveraged myself when I didn't have to. I took so many risks to get to that point. And yeah, part of me thought it was never going to end with the, with the housing, but that was some fundamental errors that I made. You know, it was like the Titanic. It was all these things that just were the perfect aligned, perfect. And my goal was to get to $3 million, and at the time the T-bills, the 10 years, were paying 5 6%. Get to that three million, you know, and then just have fun with life. I wanted to travel the world and surf, and um, and that that was sort of my mindset. But getting to the million dollars, as anyone will tell you, that is the trick. That is the hardest thing to do in life is the first million. Yeah, I've, I, I'm still working on that. Well, I, 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 uh, I'm working on my second million uh, because I gave up on the first million. <laughs> <laughs> Good thinking. Howard. I'm actually I, a couple lucky draws for me. I won't get into the, all the details, but I'm I'm right back where I was then, and I'm I'm telling you, I will not make that mistake. I'm not. I may make a mistake, but I'm not going to make that, that mistake. mistake. Again. That's right. That mistake you've already done. You got to find a new one to make. <laughs> 
The new one might be marriage. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, no, no, stop. Oh, no, 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 stop. Stop. Go back Save to federal him. prison. No. Save him. Back to federal prison. <laughs> Listen, no, no, you're not, you're not following me, are you? Follow me carefully. And I promise if I... I need to follow you. No, Do not get married. I don't, I don't need that life lesson. No. Going back to well, you'll, you'll, you'll remember we're, this conversation. We're all doing time. No, <laughs> it's I, a I, we, we only wish you the best. The, but the, uh, the the life you lead now, talk about that for us. So the life I lead now, I, I, um, I don't drink or use drugs. I wake up, I pray, and I meditate daily. I eat really good food. I try to be of service to others. I do a lot of volunteering at the Los Angeles Mission. Um, I teach a class there to the homeless people, or not the homeless people, the alumni of the mission. We're ending the eight-week schedule now, which it's very hard to keep older adults, um, to keep them uh, at attention, you know, because there's just so much out here to keep people uh preoccupied with really wanting to be successful they people are very okay with uh melancholy and they and i'm just i have i've always been a dreamer and a, you know i shoot for the stars my whole life even when i was little in prison wherever i was that i've just driven to be that way and so um i was raised catholic i don't necessarily subscribe to one single religion but what i do is i try to live my life with maximum um, or with rigorous honesty being maximum of service to all. And I try to do that as a meditation. Now, I'm not a saint, um, but that is really where I'm at today. And I really try to live that way daily. And I, we're all stewards in this life. We're spiritual beings in a physical body, and that is all we have. And life is very short. My mother and father both passed away. And my mother passed away about 15 months ago. And when the last living parent, it, that really shook my foundation and most of the letters in the book are to my mother I mean I had hundreds if not thousands there's only a couple that you know one or two open up each chapter but um, she was my best friend in the world honest to God and I, and I know we're live and I know I can say weird stuff but I was sub I mean she was my <laughs> best buddy so when, when she passed it was tough and it really just made me realize more than I already knew because having gone to Mary and having been in a cell for 23 hours a day for almost two years straight was just really that that cultivated in me a sense of gratefulness and being okay in the moment that is still with me today. But when my mom passed, it just had me look at life a little differently and to really have this respect for time because really time is the most valuable asset. So, you know, I wake up, I do five or six mile run. Um, I go to the mission twice a week now. I teach the class on Thursday. I do a little bit of modeling. I'm writing, you know, my book into a screenplay. The reason I wrote the book was not to get rich or famous, but was to educate America, inspire America, break myths with America, entertain them about this story, and, and one day make it into a movie because I think it's very important stuff. I mean, that's the hand that I was dealt. That's what I have. I don't know what else to do. Well, i got to pay still... you a compliment here, if you don't mind. The book is incredibly well written. And uh... Thank you. 
And that's from a person who is supposedly a professional author. <laughs> who would don't, that be? Don't get bro? too excited about that compliment, Joel. But, but, but I can't remember what my own book's about. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's an interesting life you lead, and I've known of you uh, for, for some time, although I don't think you and I have met. We do share many mutual, or a few mutual friends. Uh, but it's an interesting way you're going about it, and those around me have chosen to do that too. And, and it's, it's fascinating. To uh, to see somebody give of themselves, but not really say, "Hey, I'm I'm out here giving of myself." So you know, look at me. It's it's uh, it's quite the opposite. And uh, you don't want to get rich and famous from this story. Um, you want to help people, and I think that that's uh, that's more than happening. speaking of helping people. Uh, we've Thank had you. other uh, people on the show who've been in prison, come out of prison, or or worked for the prison system. Washington State Penitentiary on recently. It seems to be that the the transition from being inside the prison to living outside of it is sure as hell not easy, especially for someone who's been in there a long time. It's not. It's not. And here's the thing, though. When I got to Marion, there was nothing worse that could happen to me. And for a guy like me, who's always been a life of extremes and always just wanted to push it to the limit, it's what I needed. It really is. Now, it was, it was a heinous, brutal, violent place, but I got to a place there. Every, the, the leader of the Aryan Brotherhood gave me this book on the yoga. He said that we should do yoga. I started to do yoga. I would wake up at 6 in the morning or 5.30. I would do, you know, 45, 50 minutes of the yoga. I would do the deep breathing. I started keeping these lists, like fiscal responsibility, time management, what am I going to do, grateful journals the vision board, stuff that I still do today, stuff that I teach people at the mission, stuff there's there's individuals that I mentor at the mission too, and that's what I teach them. Like these are the things that any CEO of a Fortune five hundred company or a manager at a restaurant you're gonna do. You know, my list, what am I doing today, this week, this month, and what is my vision? What am I grateful for today? Stuff that I've learned in the the the, 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 the other areas in my life too that I've found that um, people that maybe sobriety or, or uh, uh, other sort of spiritual programs that that's incorporated into. And so when I was in Mary and I, I had that. And the thing is, in federal prison, they don't really give you anything when you go home. There's nothing. There's, they don't give you money. They don't really give you any tools or anything to help you to come back into society. But the thing I found at the other prisons, I still worked out at the other prisons and read voraciously. There was just enough fodder to keep me not focused. I mean, I would be smoking pot. I'd be getting a gram of heroin. I'd have to sell it, and maybe I'd make a batch of hooch. There was just enough stuff to keep me to where I wasn't really focused on when I got out. But when I got to Marion, I mean, I had to focus on, you know, not getting killed, but also you're either going to go insane, you're going to go insane, or you're going to get real spiritual. And I saw guys come in with me, and within six months they were drooling into the rag talking to themselves. There was no middle ground there. And so for that, and of course that might be a little hindsight because I made it through, I think, with flying colors. I've been out for 19 years. I haven't reoffended. But I think that that has helped me to be to who I am today. Now, I don't want to discount who I am. I like to take all the credit. But, no, I think that is part of, you know, is it nurture or nature? I don't know. But I think some of it in that regard was some um, the way that I was nurtured. I mean, I essentially grew up in federal prison. I did. I was a little boy when I went in. And I had Today to have you are a man. I, I guess. I mean, you know, I had to I had to I had to be 
a wicked, cunning criminal to survive and not be raped. I did. I had to become that person, and I was, but I'm not. I'm not now, and I wasn't when I got out. Now, when I got out, it was a wicked struggle, but I was so hungry to succeed because I'd been to Marion, and I was a believer. And the fact of the matter is, how did this story begin? I said that, and it's true, I declared to my family, I don't want to go to prison, so I'm not selling drugs. But it is kind of paradoxical because when I went to prison, I started to sell heroin because I didn't want to, I wanted to support my marijuana habit. But when I got out, I knew that I wasn't going to go back to selling drugs. I didn't want to. So I had this hunger and thirst to succeed, and it just drove me to do it, to, to, to just to get to work and to just put my nose to the grindstone and to make it happen. And I did. Well, how did you, uh, where'd you get the funding to start your business? So I started a job at the Bradley Center, and I making five eighty-five an hour in fall. I got out on the twenty-eighth of August of nineteen ninety-seven, and then I got this job. And then each paycheck, I would buy like a tool, a rake, a trimmer. And then that first summer, I started landscaping. advertising, borrowed a bunch of money, and then did a bunch of, like, retaining walls and brick decks, and I grossed about 150000 the second summer I was out. But about the third or fourth week I was out, as I was going to work, I saw big drug butts go down across the street at a house, and they ran, right as I was leaving for work, and they ran out of the house, the DA, FBI, ATF, they had the jackets on with the yellow lettering on back or white lettering and there was a big brick of cocaine they came out with. And so I'm like, I'm, I took the mental note. Now, in federal prison, as I stated before, you learn about all these esoteric laws and the law libraries, and there was this rule about forfeiture, and I learned all about forfeiture. I mean, because you you're in prison. There's a law library. You don't have much time to do anything but learn. Um, and I learned about this esoteric rule that if you make an unsolicited bid for a piece of property that gets forfeited, the way that it's auctioned is completely different. They have changed the rules since. Um, so I started that process, and I made the unsolicited bid. Now, part of it is they don't even know once the bus goes down. It's months and months and months because the guy might win the trial. He might be guilty. Part of the deal that they make, he might they might not take the house. But I figured because of what I saw and what I learned when I was in prison, there was a very high probability they were going to take this house. Now, I didn't know this was going to start a real estate career. I just thought, hey, I can get a cheap house to live in. So I did get the house. About 18 months later, There was a, um, un- I made the unsolicited bid. There was a tiny auction with only one other guy. I got last right of refusal. That was part of the, the rules of this, this esoteric rule, that if you made an unsolicited bid. So I got the house. It was an old craftsman bungalow. I restored it. Some people in the neighborhood helped me to learn like how to really restore it. They saw I was sympathetic to architecture. My mother always took me to see these Frank Lloyd Wright houses when I was little in uh, in Oak Park, and I just I think I always had this appreciation for it. So when I got done with it, I said to myself, hey, I can do this. House and flipping. I discovered, I discovered this passion. I don't like that word flipping because, I mean, this house really needed a lot of work. 
So, I mean, the bathroom, the kitchen. Yeah, to bathroom, restore it. Yeah, a friend of mine does that. Gets somebody got one that was burnt down. It was just a mess. I walked through it with him. By the time it was done, it was restored to exactly how it looked when it was first built in 1906. Yeah. I'm, I just, I, I got one for sale right now. It's my 39th building in 19 years that I've owned in my name. It's in Milwaukee. It's uh, in a very, very upper class neighborhood. And, it's for sale. Actually, someone just looked at it for the second time. I think they're writing an offer. And I live in Los Angeles, so I'm selling it because I want to kind of start doing it out here. But I'm, out here, I might just do developing. But that was something I've always had a green thumb and was passionate about landscaping. But when I did this thing with the house, it's just because there's an artistic side to it. There's this control. There's this you're taking some pile of crap and you're turning it into this. This thing of beauty, and then you That's make money at it. That's what we do on radio, because we, we look at it, and we go, we go well, this is a piece of crap. What could we do to transform it into the standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry? That's true. It's kind of like what, what happened to me with my life and with, like, the jail and the whole thing. I mean, I hate to say it, but I think it did help to transform me in a way. The whole the whole process of it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, who, what, why are we all here? Who the hell knows, right? Well, I'll tell you one thing. We're here to help sell your book. Letters from Marion, A Deadhead's Journey from Peace to a Supermax Prison by Joel Blazer. Buy it, read it, believe it. I got, I have one final question. Yeah. yeah. Why the dead? Yeah, why, why the Grateful Dead? <laughs> it was by accident. It was by accident. I bought a ticket. My brother took me for my 13th birthday to ACDC for those about to rock resolution. And I heard on the radio a couple months later the Grateful Dead was coming to town. I thought they were heavy metal. Um, I bought this ticket, which was a ticket to the show, as one ticket for like $12. It was 1984. I was 15 years old. I took my, my, the local sweetheart with me, and we went, and it was this incredible scene. It was this social scene in the parking lot. The music was unbelievable. And I just fell in love with the whole thing. You know, I had this weird childhood, and it was just the timing was perfect. And it was the most amazing time of my life. I mean, I saw him 101 times in five countries from 1984 to 1992, and it was just exquisite time of my life. The only part about the tour that was weird was the fact that I was always fearing going to jail. I didn't sell a lot of drugs. Yeah, I didn't sell a lot of drugs in the parking lots at all. I would have fun. I would meet customers and then later contact them and set up the, yeah, the set mail up the orders. Well, listen, we got we got to go. Joel, thanks so much. Thanks for being here. here. Letters from Marion. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great. at any Barnes and Noble in the country. It's at Amazon. It's at BarnesandNoble.com on Kindle and Nook, but you can go to any Barnes and Noble. Or uh, you can buy it where you get yours on the uh, Amazon. Super duper psychedelic. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for the uh, purple Owlsleys. <laughs> hey, bro. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen of the Demons of Decadence, live from the Lightning Lounge and Outlaw Radio USA.com.